0: You are listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9, Season 4, Episode 6. This week, I speak to the director of the Queen Surveillance Studies Centre, David Lyon. Holly Hondrick and Hilary Alton interviewed Kent Roach, the author of False Security, The Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism. And finally, Noah Gordon and Chris Hemmer discuss the refugee situation with Arne Koslenko, as always, we conclude with a discussion this week on the Paris attacks. We go now to an interview with Kent Roach.
1: Today,
2: we are very lucky to be joined by Kent Roach, one of Canada's top legal professors with respect to national security. Kent teaches at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and has worked with the Arrar Commission, which is implemented following the U.S. deportation to Syria and subsequent imprisonment and torture of a Canadian citizen, Mahar Arar. Along with Craig Forsays, Kent has provided what McLean's magazine called the intellectual core of the pushback against Bill C-51, Canada's Anti-Terrorism Act. Together, they wrote Announcing False Security, the Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism, which provides a detailed account of Bill C-51 and its impact on privacy and security. So we want to start with a kind of basic overview for our listeners about Bill C-51. So we know it's the sort of anti-terror bill, um, looking at, I think, surveillance in particular. I mean, you talk about it as being the most radical um, national security law ever legislated. So what does that mean exactly?
3: Right. Well, and and we were talking about Canada. But basically, C-51 is omnibus, which means it had lots of different parts legislation that was introduced in response to the two terrorist attacks in October. Uh, one of the most radical p- parts of it is there's a new law that facilitates information sharing. Now, you might think the information sharing should should only be about terrorism, because that's what the bill was supposed to be responding to. But it, 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 it has the broadest definition of security interests that Craig and I have ever seen. So basically, this is what raised concerns that, you know, if you're working with environmental groups or indigenous groups that might... Uh, uh, you know, be considering blockading a pipeline or some kind of development, you could be subject to information sharing. Now it's important to know the information sharing uh, can go from anyone in the federal government to 17 different agencies, including, of course, CSIS, which is our intelligence agency. So that's that's one of the radical features. The second radical feature is they basically have expanded the mandate of CSIS. CSIS was created in 1984 in part because the rcmp who used to do that job of collecting intelligence about security threats had broken the law by doing things like burning barns down and disrupting people that they thought were terrorists well what what bill c51 does is it gives CSIS a new jurisdiction to take steps to reduce threats to the security of canada and so, again, this isn't just about terrorism. This is about anything that could be defined as a threat to the security to, of of Canada. And the only limits are that CISA's can't, invade bodily integrity, sexual integrity, or obstruct justice. But other than that, uh, the bill allows CSIS to do anything, including anything that violates the law or violates a charter right, uh, if a judge says uh, that it's necessary in order to reduce threats to the security of Canada. So it's probably those are the two most radical features. Uh, other features are that there's a new criminal offense of advocating terrorism offenses in general, which, you know, if someone spoke out and said, you know, I don't know, um, if I was in Palestine, I might do X, uh, then uh, a person could be liable under that law. And uh, there are also provisions in the law about being placed on a no-fly list uh, and having your passport revoked. So there are provisions that basically allow the state to imprison you in Canada. uh, And uh, one of the concerns are that it might be based on evidence or intelligence that you never get to see.
2: Since the bill implemented, obviously it's been very recent, but have there been a proliferation of abuses of the law? Have people been arrested, tried, etc. for doing things that um, undermine the security of Canada, to quote from the bill?
3: yeah no i mean i mean i mean the the answer to that is no, but i mean part of the part of our concerns is we might know not know exactly what is going on. I mean we would know if someone was arrested and no one has been arrested, say under the new offense, but in terms of information sharing and in terms of ceases taking steps to reduce threats to the security of Canada, both of those things would be carried out in secret, so we wouldn't know but it is a valid point that nobody has been arrested. And, and it is also important to know that, you know, being deemed a threat to the security of Canada is not a crime. But it does expose you both to information sharing and to CSIS uh, taking steps to disrupt your activities.
4: In a June article that you and Craig wrote for the Canadian Privacy Law Review, you stated that Bill C-51 is just as much about how Canada is getting security wrong as it is about how recent laws are jeopardizing rights. Can you talk a bit about how Canada has gotten this security wrong and then in your opinion what um, the most important rights are that are being jeopardized with this bill?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as as you mentioned, I I worked on both the Arar Commission and the Air India Commission, and one of the things that C-51 gets wrong is it ignores both of recommendations that the Arar commission made about the need for a whole of government review uh, to make sure that these laws are not abused and also recommendations that air air india commission made that would require more sharing of terrorism information and i think partly because you know it was pretty clear that the former government uh... really had no time uh... for experts or for uh... uh... recommendations made by royal commissions that uh... they 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 made this law really without an evidence-based i mean another problem is we really don't know yet what exactly went wrong with the two october terrorist attacks so we know that there was enough material to take the passport away from one of the attackers but then nothing else was was done so one of the reasons why we called the the book false security is we think the way the government the previous government proceeded both threatened rights but also did not implement reforms that could actually uh, improve our security response and obviously after paris and things like like that the second part of our critique is just as important as the first part
2: so your your books you mentioned is kind of how we got we got the canada got the response wrong got the response to radicalization wrong he spoke about how um There is a radicalization problem, but we can't prosecute or detain our way out of this problem. Can you describe the nature of this threat? I mean, you look at the media these days, particularly following Paris, as you mentioned, it seems as though we are all under fire, in danger of terrorist threats at any moment. Is this threat exaggerated, or is it a legitimate concern, but the way we have approached the concern is actually the problem?
3: Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, we're never going to know Exactly what the threat is, but I do think it is legitimate. The UN Security Council has recognized it as a threat to world peace. There's a reported thirty thousand terrorist uh, fighters that have come from a hundred different countries uh, to join in foreign terrorist fights. So that's uh, that's that's a real threat, and 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 we certainly don't say that it is not. But you know certainly. Uh, uh, our response to it has to be uh, both I think respectful of human rights but also uh, smarter and so one, one of the things that we point out in the book is that unlike many countries Canada really doesn't have a a crime prevention or what is sometimes called a countering violent extremism program. Uh, And one of the problems there is, of course, uh, the federal division of powers. So if we want, you know, teachers and doctors and social workers to play a role here, there's going to have to be buy-in from the provinces. So the the new Trudeau government has said that they will appoint a coordinator uh, and, and and I think that that is uh, a positive de- development to try to prevent and 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 to respond to people who are picking up this ISIS propaganda and uh, thinking that it's that it's a good idea.
4: So you just spoke about Canada's um, Liberal Party. They we do know that they supported the passing of Bill C fifty one in the House last year, and then on the campaign trail, Trudeau was quoted as saying he didn't regret this decision. Um, but the Liberals have promise that they would sort of increase oversight if they were elected i know you mentioned um, the role of provinces but what else would prime minister trudeau mean for the future of the bill
3: um, yeah well i mean i mean there, there's a couple of things one is uh... that uh... the new government is committed to introducing a parliamentary committee that will have access to secret information and that that i think is important i mean i i testified at parliament and one of the parliamentarians you know because we were debating in part the no-fly list said uh... you know how many people are on the no-fly list in canada and the parliamentarian was told that Uh, He couldn't receive that information because... yeah, uh, it was secret. So, I mean, I think that that's a positive development. I don't think that that is sufficient. Uh, the mandate letter that has gone out to the new minister of justice uh, and the new minister of public safety uh, instructs them to amend the problematic aspects of Bill C fifty one. So, I think that uh, we're going to have to wait uh, to see exactly what the government will identify as problematic aspects. But I do think that uh... this government's willingness uh... to uh, consult with both expert and community groups is a very positive sign uh... craig and i testified both in the house of commons and in the senate on bill c-51 uh... and uh, uh... let's 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 just say i mean we didn't get a particularly rough ride but uh groups uh, uh civil liberties groups and muslim groups were treated actually very poorly uh by some of the conservative parliamentarians and so i'm hoping that the new government will uh at least listen to the concerns that we and many others uh... have raised about bill c51 because you know the other thing you have to remember is bill c51 is introduced uh... january thirtieth uh... two thousand fifteen really as part of a campaign uh... rally uh... and it gets you know ninety percent public support but that was partly because people didn't know what was in bill c C c51 and the public opinion polls suggest that the more people find out what is in bill c51 the more uh, concerned uh, that, that they are.
2: So then, in that sense, do you think that it's that part of the motivation for Bill C-51 would just have some sort of public response to ostensibly be um, making doing something to make Canadians safer after the October attacks?
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 look, I mean, you know that that's not a particular issue uh, with the former Harper government. I mean, it happened after nine eleven, and I was involved in some of the debates after that. That I think around the world instinctively when a terrible act of terrorism happens governments often legislate and you know the problem is is they sometimes overreact and sometimes they legislate without full information or evidence about what went wrong and why the terrorist act that they are responding to happened in the first place
2: you mentioned as well how um, the new Liberal government, some of the new relevant ministers, have now a mandate to address and hopefully um, reform some of the quote problematic aspects of Bill C 51. But is there anything actually worth saving as they go through in the reform? Are there parts of the bill that you think should be saved and used going forward?
3: Well, I mean, certainly um, I think the idea of having legislation on information sharing, having legislation on passport revocation having legislation on no no-fly those are all good ideas that we shouldn't be doing this simply without legislation and behind the scenes so I think having legislation is a good idea but on all all of those issues there are details of the legislation that we propose in the book should 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 be changed so uh, and if I could put in a bit of a plug for the book, but, but it really isn't for me. Uh, it is more that um, you know pu- the publisher took a huge economic risk and put a lot of resources into allowing us to get this book out so soon. And it's written uh, in a way that you don't have to be a lawyer or, or a law student uh, to understand uh, uh, the book uh, there's a lot on the history there's a lot on the sociology and so um, you know uh, if, 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 if people are, are at all interested you can get the book either uh, at the Irwin Law website or uh, I think chapters may have a few copies
4: So you've spoken a lot about how governments have responded to sort of terrorist attacks, whether that be 9-11 or the October attacks. How do you think or how do you predict the recent events in Paris will impact how this new Canadian government addresses security concerns?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think that's that's a really good good question. I mean, we've seen already, I think, some movement and some slowing down on the refugee issue. I think the prime minister felt very strongly that um, he wanted to uh, take uh, the CF18s out, although apparently they are still uh, participating. But for me, I guess the issue, and we'll we'll see what happens, is whether Paris. Um, influences the government's determination of what parts of the bill are problematic Um, and um, you know um, I think that really remains to be seen in the coming weeks and months
2: I mean your book is the kind of great title Radicalization of Anti-terrorism and I mean the response in the United States has been sort of incredible and horrifying to watch I think the the racism and the xenophobia that's kind of penetrated public discourse following the Paris attacks specifically with um, Syrian refugees and whether or not they can come in the country. So has this been influential to the government? Are they shaping their bills to cater to this racist um, talk following the the attacks?
3: Yeah well look I mean you know um Obviously, there's there's some extreme stuff south of the border, but you don't, you know, there's been at least two incidences of reported hate crimes against Muslims in Toronto. So, you know, um, I don't think that we're immune to this, uh, but I do think it is. You know, it's even more important in that kind of toxic environment uh, to uh, to uh, get these things right, right? Because having laws that in, that, as w- as we argue, both infringe human rights but don't make us more secure. Is actually going to make Muslim communities even more vulnerable. They will be vulnerable to uh, violations of their human rights. But also, if uh, if uh, acts of terrorism continue, then we're going to see uh, even more uh, hatred and discrimination. However irrational that 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 is, I mean, I you know I think it's right uh, that leaders take a principled stand and oppose this. And I. Think I think you've seen both president obama and prime minister trudeau uh, speaking uh, out on those issues but the fact is uh we have to get this right and the communities that have the most to lose if we get this wrong uh are uh are muslim communities
4: so i think bill c51 was an omnibus bill and pretty difficult for canadians to fully understand and i think that your book and with speaking with us today you really helped sort of clarify a lot of things that the bill is doing and what we might expect um, with the new Trudeau government so we just wanted to thank you for being with us today.
3: No, thank, thank, thank you very much for having me on.
0: Our next guest is a renowned author, sociologist, director of the Surveillance Studies Center at Queens, and was the principal investigator for the new transparency project. His latest book is Surveillance After Snowden. Please welcome David Lyon. Tell us about your work with the New Transparency Project.
1: Yeah, the New Transparency Project was uh, centered at the um, Surveillance Study Center here at Queens, uh, although it has um, partners involved in it across Canada and uh, in other countries as well. And what we were trying to do as a team project, okay, what we were trying to do in that, it actually came to an end this year, uh, we were trying to make visible the uh, identities of individuals, institutions, flows of information, all those kinds of things that uh, were not very visible. I mean, we started from the premise that uh, in today's world, there are organizations that are less and less visible to us as ordinary people um, that are making us more visible to them. So it's a kind of asymmetry that has been building for uh, for many years, really. So we were trying to uh, turn that around and try to show what is otherwise uh, invisible by um, making it more Uh, out in the open. So we were looking at questions like what makes these new technologies of governance expand? What are they kind of infrastructures and institutions that support surveillance, and importantly, what are the implications for ordinary people? And um, that led us to decide towards the end of the project that we were going to make a uh, book together that would really explore this. So we we made a book called Transparent Lives Surveillance in Canada, also available as uh, Vivre en Nuit, uh, La Surveillance au Canada which looks at ten, actually it's nine, key trends in surveillance today. So, things like increasing use of uh, data from the human body, biometrics, that sort of thing. Uh, the increasing use of uh, mobile locations, so the capacity to track people through different uh, geographical locations. The fact that so much surveillance is increasingly embedded in the routines of everyday life, showing your card here, uh, inserting cards especially to get into buildings or to get access to various kinds of things. All, all that uh, we saw as key trends and uh, so, yeah, the book came out. It's actually available uh, free online as well as uh, as a book. But what we realized from that and what led to our new application was that every one of the nine trends that we were looking at were being affected by new data practices. And so we switched to um, an, an application to do work on what we're calling big data Surveillance, and uh, that's our new project. It was funded, and uh, we're just in the process of uh, getting that pro- getting that pro- project going. And so, we're working at ways in which so-called data analytics, this big data phenomenon, affects surveillance in a range of areas. Um, I don't suppose you want me to go on about it forever, but we are looking at uh, the kind of obvious ones in national security but also in marketing, uh, by which we're thinking of the ways in which uh, consumer-based corporations are uh, using what we call surveillance methods in marketing, but also to look at voter surveillance. Mm -hmm. Uh, People became particularly aware during the uh, recent election in Canada that, uh, in fact, that political parties are using modes of surveillance that is targeting very specific groups of people known on the basis of various kinds of uh, data about them with specific messages to try to encourage them to vote in a particular way Uh, that didn't necessarily have to do with the overall platform of the party but rather were targeted to specific individuals. So that, and and we're also looking at... uh, big data and urban governance, so things like how big data practices are affecting uh, policing today. So, that was a long answer to your first question, but does that give you some clues?
0: Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, it really shows how big data has become really salient to all the major political issues that uh, we discuss here on the show. Um, Absolutely, Yep. And, and one of your most recent books is titled uh, Surveillance After Snowden. Um, I'd like to ask you, how has Edward Snowden uh, been a game changer in the realm of surveillance?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great question. I mean, when you've written a book on it, to answer it in like a minute or less, it was <laughs> uh, not straightforward. Right. But, um, you know, I think there are two key things, maybe. One of them is that... Uh, What we discovered from the disclosures that uh, the documents from uh, uh, the the documents that uh, Snowden showed us uh, is just the extent of activities that many of us in the field had suspected for a long time were happening, but this gave us evidence. And so that was a really critical thing that we had masses of evidence. From what, uh, from the Snowden documents that showed us that uh, what he calls mass surveillance was uh, being carried out, that uh, it wasn't affecting specific targeted individuals uh, in the way that one might imagine, but rather everyone was uh, caught in the dragnet, and that um, corporations as well as uh, government departments were involved. So, you know, I think that was the 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 game-changer, if you like, the fact that we could say, yeah, look at this document. This shows that, for example, the NSA is tapping right into fiber optic cables that carry the uh, internet around the world. But then there's, you you catched it in in part by saying, how has Edward Snowden been a game-changer? I think he was a game-changer and is a game-changer. And I think what I'd say here is that um, he did things differently. There had, of course, been other uh, whistleblowers before Snowden, quite a number, and quite a number from within the NSA. But what he did was, rather than remaining anonymous, within a couple of days of the first um, disclosures, he came out and, said so what his name was and uh so we immediately knew that it was this character called snowden and uh where he had been so a little kind of speculation and um uh concern about you know who is this guy we knew right away and i think that was very very helpful and as i say it was new but he also uh decided not to come out with the revelations himself went through journalists which again was a new way of doing things and it turned out to be exceedingly successful in that he went to two people that he well two or three people that he thought he could really trust and that he thought he thought would do a good job of actually disseminating the kinds of materials that uh, he had uh, taken with him or rather that he had copied from the NSA and um in so doing, he uh, chose people who had a sense of what was appropriate to disclose when, some kind of strategy rather than just uh, an open uh, dissemination of the documents. So that was a, a great move, too. And if anyone's seen the uh, documentary that uh, Laura Patras made, she was one of the uh, three journalists that he was in touch with, Citizen uh, Four, shows in great detail just how these things happened and just the way in which the news moved around the world so rapidly, I think in part, well, and strategically, yeah. I think in part just because he chose to work for journalists. So it was, it was really important what he did.
0: Yeah, and, and you recently had the opportunity to discuss this at the uh, Queen's International Affairs Association Forum uh, here at Queen's University uh where Edward Snowden was the keynote speaker what were your thoughts on that event
1: well i mean i thought it was a a wonderful event and uh kudos to the uh students who arranged it i was i was very proud of them i thought they did a great job um, and uh one of the things, one of the things that really struck me was uh, people were lining up all the way down the street from uh, Union Street down to uh, Grant Hall, and so there were hundreds and hundreds of people, nearly a thousand people uh, got into Grant Hall to listen to him and uh, to see him live and, and then he were turned away and went off to uh, watch the live stream. That in itself, I think was significant because it showed to me that um, there was great and real interest. These people weren't lining up to go to some uh, rock band or to some um, football game. They were lining up for a serious discussion about matters that actually are of global significance but affect each of our lives uh, very deeply. So I was impressed by that. And uh, his own presence there, his awareness of uh, not just the Canadian situation but his sense of... Speaking to a university campus, I found very uh, impressive too. Um, And of course, he's such an articulate person. Um, I was impressed by some of his one-liners, like when one of the students asked him, uh, through me, whether uh, what what he made of his uh, life in Russia and what he was, uh, you know, how that came about. And he said, "I don't live in Russia. I live on the internet." And that was to turn around a question that was asked in innocence and just out of interest, I guess, to turn it around and say, listen, I know where you live, too. You live online. So much of our lives are lived online, and we really need to think about what we're doing online. It isn't just an innocent activity. We're engaged uh, not just as kind of individuals, but as citizens online. What are we doing there? How are we taking our... Rights and responsibilities online. So, you know, I was uh, I was really impressed with him, and of course, it was uh, it was good to interact directly with him in ways that I hadn't previously had the chance to do. So, yeah, I think it was a very worthwhile event.
0: Definitely, it it really felt like a happening, and and I think that uh, that's a very good insight. The idea of living online, I think, it ties in a lot with um, actually something that you said at a, at a forum in Sydney, Australia, twenty twelve uh... that modern surveillance is no longer a top-down phenomenon where they are watching us but one in which we kind of are willingly watching each other in every everyday routines like social media that incorporate surveillance culture so i'm wondering um... about those routines which which phenomenon is more desirable uh... the kind of uh... institutions watching us or us uh, watching each other
1: yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I didn't actually say that um, there is no longer top-down surveillance. Oh, no, no, there no, is, yes. of course. Yes, yes. But the point is that that kind of activity has been joined by other kinds of activity within what I'm now calling a surveillance culture. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been quite a shift. When I started uh, working on these issues back in the early 1980s, really state surveillance or government surveillance was the thing that bothered people. And that was uh, the key thing. But within a few years, there was more concern about uh, gov- uh, corporate surveillance, marketing, the ways in which very similar methods were being used between um government departments and corporations and, of course, close cooperation between them as well, as we discovered, especially after 9-11. But today, I think, uh, I mean, it was in the, really, not until the post-9-11 period that social media came into its own. There was some of what we now call social media existing, of course, before, but really Facebook was a kind of watershed there, so that's 2004. Mm -hmm. And so, in the last 10 years only, there's been this huge shift towards so-called uh, Web 2.0 and the idea of user-generated content and, and so on and so forth. But it's not just user-generated content; it's it's user involvement yeah. in all kinds of activities online that include what you might think of as surveillance. So uh taking a focused interest in the personal details of another or of others uh in ways that you hope will um influence them or uh well if it's corporate or state surveillance then manage them control them uh protect them Mm -hmm. entitle them but that can also be applied in the realm of uh, kind of ordinary everyday surveillance. Not just social media either, if you think about it, it's also um, in areas like what you might call domestic surveillance, where parents will Uh, watch their kids using navigation devices in vehicles, or we'll watch the nanny who's watching their kids, or we'll, you know, there are all sorts of ways that we watch others, and even, of course, watch ourselves, think about Fitbits and all the uh, kind of paraphernalia associated with checking one's personal health and fitness. So, in so many ways, we've ended up collecting data on ourselves, and on each other, and thus kind of normalizing surveillance. You know, we, we look at uh, Facebook pages and we see facial recognition technology at at work, mm-hmm. as unidentified people suddenly have a little name arising and appearing next to their uh, next to their photograph. Mm-hmm. So. We are now using those kinds of methods in everyday life. Now you ask, what is uh, more desirable? I take the view that surveillance is kind of a human given. We, we all do it one way and another. Institutions, governments and so on have always engaged in this, this is uh, nothing new. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it isn't good or bad in itself. But it's never, ever neutral. So I take the view and mm-hmm. and argue that um, surveillance is something that has to be assessed ethically. It has to be contested politically, whatever it is. You know, whether it's obviously for my good. I mean, I, uh, I swim several times a week and I'm very keen on the surveillance of the uh, lifeguard at the pool mm-hmm. because, you know, she or he is there for my good. So I applaud that kind of surveillance. But there are other kinds of surveillance that I think are uh, excessive, unnecessary, um, intrusive, that may well violate certain kinds of rights that uh, many would agree that we should be able to uh, maintain. So, you know, is it more or less desirable? I think one problem with the kind of everyday surveillance culture is that we, we normalize surveillance, we domesticate it. When we do it ourselves, when we use facial recognition technology on Facebook, all those kinds of things, it's very easy to think, well, it's, it's fun. It's, it's part of our way of finding out about our friends and, and how things are going with them and so on and so forth. And it turns it into something that seems to be very normal, straightforward, nothing to worry about. And I don't think we think enough about how something like facial recognition technology may have very different meanings in different contexts mm. and may well have some quite negative aspects associated with it in some contexts where it's being used in uh, policing or national security or whatever. So I think there's, that. there's a risk, anyway, of, uh, of normalizing, and I think uh, there's, there's evidence for that, that uh, I and some of my colleagues have been looking at. So, again, um, it's not a yes-no answer, or one's desirable and the other's not. It's rather how do we assess it and how do we uh, question it when necessary? Those are the big ones, I think. Mm. Uh,
0: What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about surveillance?
1: Oh, that's difficult again. There are many. Um, I think one is the misconception that somehow surveillance affects other people and not them. Mm. They've seen person of interest or they are aware of some case and they think that surveillance is really focusing in what has to be described as a kind of old-fashioned way on some suspect, some uh, situation that uh, has been deemed to be worthy of uh, special attention by the uh, security forces or police or whatever. And uh, I think that is such a mistake, especially from what we now know from Edward Snowden, that it is something that touches all of our lives. Whether we like it or not, whether we're on Facebook or not, we can still be surveilled using Facebook. We appear on other people's photos, for example. And uh, it's, it's not really possible not to be visible to uh, both commercial entities and to uh, government departments. So I think that um, you know it's, uh, it's something that we have to come to terms with, and I think that when people think that way, then they miss the point that we're all drawn in, and that's connected with another, which is people frequently say, and you know, I hear uh, students say it sometimes too, um, well, I've done nothing wrong so you know, I have nothing to hide so why should I worry mm. and then I think it's also a, a misconception which uh, is, is unhelpful because uh, well just to back up for a moment I should say that I believe that if we lived in a world where uh, when we have nothing to hide we have nothing to fear it would be a wonderful thing that is something worth aiming at to not worry that um, something might go wrong because someone knows something about you. Uh, It would be great if we lived in that kind of a world. But the fact is that mass surveillance, where uh, metadata, where uh, data from all kinds of sources are being concatenated and uh, analyzed and compared, means that we're all involved. And we get categorized in terms of our um, we get judged in terms of our categories that group into which we fall those um, users who are similar to us all, all that kind of thing and so it 's not what we have done it 's how we are classified according to who our friends' acquaintances, contacts, and so on are mm. and so Judgments are made on the basis of those connections. That's the whole point of metadata. And therefore, uh, we can't really believe that um, idea that uh, if we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear. So, you know, I think that's a, a misconception. Um, so, I think we can return to the fact that surveillance is a basic organizing principle of many, many institutions and organizations today. And that what we need to do is find ways of engaging with it, understanding it, and hopefully contributing to better surveillance that does not uh, end up being excessive or worse, illegal, um, and rather which limits its targets, if you like. and. Uh, act in a way that is commensurate with uh, a desire to see the good of everyone and to uh, uphold uh, people's rights and, uh, and their freedoms as, as citizens and doesn't have a chilling effect on people. So I think that's the way that I would answer that question, uh, but it's a really good one.
0: Well, thank you very much for answering our questions today and, and thank you for appearing on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. We are lucky to be joined tonight by Dr. Arne Kislenko, who is a professor of the Monk School of Global Affairs at U of T and as well as well as a professor of history at Ryerson University. He has published numerous articles on international relations, contemporary intelligence, and national security. He has also worked as a security consultant for the federal government. Can you briefly outline your role as a senior officer with Canada Immigration at Pearson Airport?
5: Sure. It was a long time ago. Uh, um, for 12 years, I served between 1989 and 2001. Okay. And uh, my main function was, uh, obviously, as the title gives, gives away, as, a, as an immigration officer. Um, what I did as a senior officer was to uh, make determinations on people's admissions to Canada, all different kinds of people, uh, refugees, immigrants, visitors, uh, residents, so on. Um, And with particular sort of connection to the world of security and and intelligence, I I guess, Um, increasingly over that career, I was uh, responsible for most international security issues. Um, So I was cleared top secret and I dealt uh, mostly with, you know, the sort of uh, fun cases, the the heavy stuff, things like uh, organized crime, um, yes, terrorists, uh, general bad guys, more complicated matters, uh, stuff that involved different jurisdictions, so international players, you know, Americans, uh, Germans, and so on, uh, international law enforcement agencies and all that. So saw a lot, uh, did a lot, uh, lost a lot of hair over 12 <laughs> years of uh, dealing with that sort of stuff, and, and that was certainly my frontline line exposure uh, to things like terrorism.
0: Right. So with, with having this background of can you speak to maybe like the checks that are in place to ensure that uh, that there aren't terrorists within populations of refugees or or anyone coming through uh, Pearson uh, that being accepted to countries
5: sure Uh, Well, I mean things have you know changed I mean processes and and, uh, you know sometimes regulations and and the law has changed since I was there so that's important to say right Uh, so for example we have you know a new uh, entirely new system I say entirely because it's premised on a new law, the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, um, which is a very different uh, legislation than I dealt with. I dealt with the old immigration act so so laws were different, i mean not uh you know hideously different it's not like we you know made things up as we went way back when right they're, they're much more uh, scripted in a lot of ways. Um, and as a result, sometimes, uh, you know, office, uh, obviously offices and, and various, um, you know, components of the bureaucracy work differently. But, but in effect, you know, over certainly that, that span of time, the protocols are basically the same and they, they review, you know, they, they revolve around a review of one's identity um, of one's claim, right of who they are and what they have, you know, been doing, what their sort of background is, and it really depends at where they intersect with the system, and by that I mean if if somebody is applying at a legation overseas, a consulate or an embassy, uh, for any sort of status, refugee or otherwise, you know, there are obviously measures that the government of Canada can take to, you know, go through the process, right? It's a waiting mm-hmm. game. They have to submit police reports. They are subject to interviews and so on. Um, it becomes much different when somebody simply shows up at the gate, right? And that's a lot of what I did mm-hmm. is interviewing people coming to claim refugee status, um, you know, usually with a, an obvious story uh, of sorts yeah. uh, to tell us why they're, you know, why they're coming, why they're fleeing uh, persecution under the United Nations uh, guidelines, um, but logistically, it's a very different calculation because with somebody sitting in front of you, you don't have the luxury of waiting. You can't send them back. Uh, usually they come with fake passports and documents, and it's impossible to return them to wherever, from wherever they came.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, and there's no guarantees that they are, in fact, who they say they are. So now you can sort of magnify that with the current exodus of people out of Syria and Iraq. Um, you know for for whom there is very little opportunity to you know at least immediately prove who they are and where they 've been, and that 's where people are you know concerned obviously about uh uh who you 're getting in this mass exodus right so I think that 's where mm-hmm. people 's concerns come in
0: this week 's discussion will be on the recent attacks in Paris and the international response so I was wondering if we all kind of talk about how we learned about this event and where we were and and what we thought was going on.
2: I remember I was in the train station heading home um, from school and saw the sort of wall-to-wall CNN coverage. It was actually interesting to have been at home in Toronto for the attacks for the weekend following because I don't have cable in Kingston. So I got to really see the way CNN leeches and latches on to this sort of event. This is what they thrive off. And they had the back-to-back coverage and the, you know, the kind of bizarre side stories keep the coverage coming more and more. And But the more I watched, the more I realized, what a serious event it was. It was very unclear to me at the beginning, all the chaos, confusion, um, what constituted an actually a major attack, which is pretty depressing if you think about it, that I wasn't even sure if an event that kills some people's lives, and some people's lives, was, was actually a serious attack.
0: I think it's a sign that we kind of, um, as the saying goes, we kind of amplify everything, so we didn't really know what the difference was between a real tragedy happening and just an, an everyday event that usually gets blown up with the same kind of fanfare.
2: Speaking of the framing of the event, I know, Hill, you mentioned how in the midst, directly following, the time directly following the attacks, rather, you were kind of caught in the confusion as well, unsure about what this event really meant and how it would define security in the in the modern age.
4: Yeah, I mean, I also found out through Facebook, and I didn't really know if this event would be sort of a defining feature of geopolitics in the future. We've grown up in a generation where 9-11 really shapes um, sort of all of our discussions about pretty much everything. And I was interested to see, and I'm still interested to see, how um, Paris will sort of shape the discussion of security and of refugees in the future. And I think that's sort of what prompted a lot of this episode.
2: This was, in the many ways, our generation's first time being alive and understanding just the way it unfolds and the media scrambling to find an angle, right? I mean, we all work in the media. We know that we, we want to be the first ones to say, this is who did it, this is what happened. But in that sense, really, using kind of a really specific lens, and you're cutting off what's going on. So if you decide that it's extremism, or for instance, if they think that perhaps one of the attackers may have had a refugee um, passport, refugee card, then the entire thing is spun into Syrian refugees committed these attacks. So I think that maybe is a good segue into the response. Yeah, which becomes
0: this really terrible hysteria. which, of course, we've seen with the reprisals against Muslim Canadians and Muslim Americans. Mm -hmm. There was the event in Peterborough where the mosque was burned. But at the same time, there was also the outpouring of support to rebuild uh, and to try and say that, no, we are not Islamophobic. No, this is not the direction that we want to go in. We should instead be trying to take a sober look at what is happening, what can be done, and who's affected by it, and realize that the refugees are people who are fleeing this terror, who are not bringing it.
4: I think I'm particularly fascinated with how the Republican response or America more generally has impacted um, the Canadian response. I mean, you spoke about how you were following the CNN coverage um, post the Paris attacks. And I wonder, if for a lot of Canadians, that sort of shaped their opinion of the refugee crisis. And it's not necessarily specific to what Canada or Trudeau is doing, but sort of um, North America more generally.
2: The White House, as Hillary pointed, this to me, pointed out to me, has an effective, I think, effective campaign talking about the other refugees who've been who've gotten into the States before and Canada. So, mm-hmm. for instance, Madeleine Albright was a refugee, mm-hmm. Sergey Brin, who founded Google. So just, we are, as is the U.S., founded on immigrants and refugees.
0: The interesting thing is, in, in our country, uh, one of the members of the Cabinet was a refugee. So the idea that the people that we are welcoming into the country may one day be not just you know, functioning as a part of the country, but so much so that they're actually involved in making a significant impact in running the country in a positive way. Um, I think that's a very different perspective to look at what a refugee can be, rather than just a burden on society.
2: Or he can grow up to be Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz's parents refugees, and then become Ted someone Cruz. who then denies. Ex- I mean, that's an yeah. example. Yeah. Well, but he's um, going to
0: build a wall.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um,
0: That concludes our show for this week. From myself, Holly Hondrich, Maggie Smith, and the whole Write of Reply team, we want to wish you a happy holiday season.
4: Join us when we come back January 13th.